Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me in a fine display of presenterly consistency is semi-professional vacationer and cheese muncher Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello. Crack a new one. I know. I'll try. I'll, I'll try Boring. Watching. All right. <laughs> Everyone's a reviewer. Do make sure you're subscribed to this podcast and you can review it on iTunes, even if you just shout boring. <laughs> like Thea did, uh, it always fills our hearts with joy to receive feedback, like this one, which Thea sent me on email the other day from a man called Adam. Thanks, Adam. Who awards us a stately three stars under the heading Somewhat Enjoyable. (laughs) Ouch. He objects to the smatterings of irksome political correctness among the treasures, by the way. So do get involved, whatever gender you self-identify as. (laughs) Thank you. Do please give us a go. See if you can beat Somewhat Enjoyable by Adam. This week on the Somewhat Enjoyable podcast, TLS Features editor Ros Deneen has written the lead essay, a magisterial musing on the connection between booze and art. She'll be in the studio to talk to us about it. And talking of writers and addiction, and I'm not, of course, referring to Ros, David Foster Wallace was a great and inspirational figure of American letters. David Streitfeld this week lays claim to being his worst friend. He'll tell us why. In 1967, the year after winning the Pulitzer Prize for the first volume of his dream songs, the poet John Berryman was interviewed for an article in Life magazine. When the profile appeared, published under the headline Whiskey and Ink, it bolstered a vision of genius in which the truly extraordinary poet-writer-artist is inseparable from his or her addiction to a particular substance, be it booze, heroin or both. Whiskey and Ink, the article explains almost matter-of-factly, these are the fluids John Berryman needs. He needs them to survive and describe the thing that sets him apart from other men and even from other poets his uncommonly, almost maddeningly penetrating awareness of the fact of human mortality. Later that year, Berryman was to be found vomiting blood at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. The second volume of Dream Songs came out shortly after. Berryman was, as we said, by no means the first nor the last in this vein. 
In no particular order, there's Raymond Carver, Jean Rees, William Burroughs, Kurt Cobain, Billie Holiday and Amy Winehouse. And to this list we might now add, admittedly with a significant difference, she's now sober, Leslie Jameson, a writer best known for essays that rove freely and excavate deeply. In The Recovering, she has turned her tools on her own struggle towards sobriety, and it is from this fragile new state that she now writes. Ros Deneen, who has herself roved and excavated in an essay review of Jameson's book, joins us in the studio now to discuss this troubling relation of addiction to art. Ros, welcome. Thank you, hello. Can you start by giving us a sense of the book? Because it's a real, it's a real hybrid text. It is. It's a hybrid text. There's a lot going on. So first of all, there's the story of Leslie Jameson's own addiction, which she describes brilliantly, and her recovery through AA and how difficult AA is for a writer and an artist. Secondly, she also fills the book with the stories of the great artist addicts, many of whom you just mentioned, Thea, but there are lots, and she really brings them to her cause, and we start really to sort of care about them. She's really interested in how the creative energy of these artists and their addiction, how how kind of linked together it is and what, what sort of art can be produced in sobriety. Then the book also slightly talks about the history of the war of drugs and the hypocrisies around how we te- treat different sorts of addicts. That's probably the, the weakest, the least successful part of the book, to be honest. And then it's also a book about AA and stories of more sort of ordinary addicts and how AA helped her and all of these different stories. So her aim is to write a book in chorus, she says, acting a bit like an AA meeting. So all of these different stories Mm. all come together to build this net of understanding. Why did you say that AA is not good for an artist? First of all, it's brilliant. When you first go, this is how Lizzie Jameson describes it, when you first arrive as an artist, it's fantastic because you walk into this room and there are all these people with these broken-hearted stories who are hiding things and displaying other things. They come from all walks of life. And she goes in as a writer and she's like, wow, copy, this is amazing. And then she sits down and she starts to tell her story. And the problem is that her whole life she's been told that what makes her brilliant is being different, like the modernist, like everything has to be, you have to make it new you have to express something better and differently to how anyone else has ever expressed it and that for that you will be rewarded. When you go to AA, the thing that saves you is the stuff you have in common with everyone else. The thing that you have to learn through AA is the fact there is nothing exceptional about your shame and your failure and your misery. You are the same as everyone else and they're all in it together and that's how it works. But if you're only a successful novelist, Mm. then you're talking universals though, aren't you? That should be encouraging, shouldn't it? If I write a story about my own disappointments or failings, Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be solely about me because then the book won't connect with anyone why why is that process of kind of empathy not actually in some ways a dramatization of the reading process because in the AMA meetings it's so cliched one drink is too many a thousand would never be enough oh so it's not great stories well everyone's been through the same thing everyone's been through the same thing it's the same boring story it's the things that everyone has in common rather than the things that make you exceptional this idea of exceptionality that's Mm. that's kind of what it all boils down to this whole book in a sense is, yeah. is, is Leslie Jameson's desire for it and to, to get away from it at the same time yeah totally and because it's funny because she says I'm going to write a book in chorus and it's going to be about everyone it's really her show it's really her story but she manages to oscillate between these two positions of being 
outside of the text and being this quite exceptional scribe and then being inside the process of the addiction, the alcoholism and part of the sort of communality of it all. She elides all of her, her various addictions and, and obsessions as well, doesn't she? She sort of goes, she puts it in the same framework as her eating disorder and all sorts of other things. Is that is that as a way of sort of getting rid of this idea of alcohol addiction or, or you know heroin addiction or any other substance addiction as being this exceptional thing to be romanticised somehow? She starts off with talking about all these other addictions there's like an addiction to kind of there's a sort of addiction to sex there's an addiction to uh there's an eating disorder there's all these things it's all about need and the sort of impossibility of feeling enough or sated as the book goes on though actually she does start drawing distinctions between different sorts of addiction and strangely she uses there's a brilliant book about addiction in general by a doctor called Gabor Mate it's called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and in that book, he sort of says, we can all be addicts in a way. When we start understanding that addiction is being in the thrall of something that doesn't really satiate the human soul, it's a spectrum, then it's easier to start humanising people who are suffering from addiction. So that's what, that's what his project is in his book. And she turns that and she says, I'm really sorry, but you can't say that a heroin addiction is the same as a shopping addiction. There's something quite special which is true, but there's something perversely special about her addiction, about alcoholism, about... Oh, more so than heroin. Is that because the consequences are more manageable socially? No, not more so than heroin, but more so than the addiction to work. Whereas what Gabor Mate does in his book is actually universalise and sort of make it easier to understand addicts. And he's doing that so that we can find a way, presumably, of of dealing with the problem exactly. rather than ostracising or either raising people up on a pedestal as yeah. somehow different or keeping them below. Yeah. But it's also a platitude, isn't it, to pretend that exercise addiction is as bad as heroin addiction? Because any, by any normal standards, if you, it isn't, is it? But I suppose no. the kernel is the same. Yeah, he's not, saying, he's not saying that it's the same. He's saying that it's all a matter of degree yeah. rather than a matter of, you know, these people are addicts and there's something deviant and wrong about them yeah. and these people aren't and they can moralise. He just tries to he get rid there's, of that. There's some sort of need in everyone. But the flip side of that is that we think of artists boozing mm. and writing drunk or taking drugs. There's a connection, isn't there, sort of the ecstasy of, of art, taking yourself out of yourself. We romanticise yeah. addicts because we somehow feel that the artistic juices don't get going. Mm. Unless you have some form of chemical or input, or or even it's almost like I think we see them as being martyred by their own superior vision, and maybe because these writers who we raise up as being extraordinary can see things so much more clearly than us, they have they, to... they have to cope somehow. I yeah. wonder if there's an element of that as well. It's like you know they're off the wagon and we're on it like everyone else, but they're being off the wagon makes them sets them apart and what and what she's trying to do in the book is to really kind of look at that arc of i think she calls it the arc of rot and decay this kind of idea of the story as the rises and the falls and the rises and the falls and find out what happens to those artists some of them when they get sober when everything is quite flat yeah. i mean she's not sanctimonious about about not drinking she looks back at it and goes that was a living that was sometimes incredible and there's a real grief for the fact that it's gone. And when she starts writing about it at the beginning of the book, you're thinking, I think when I get to the end of this book, she's going to start drinking again. Yeah. Because, the, because of the way she's writing about it. 
Um, and yet there's a similar elation, maybe elation is the wrong word, but there's a similar strength of feeling when she's writing about AA as well, and that's how you know. There is, and you're right, that's when you know that, you know, she really she really is sober. She doesn't go back to drinking at the end of the book, but that is unfortunately when the book begins to falter. It gets a li- it's still it's still compelling. It's still beautifully written, but it gets a little bit sentimental. Like the language of but the AA is sentimental, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, and the language of recovery, where there's just it's like unrelenting yeah, sight. There's no inner, up and down. power and stuff like that. Whenever I read about it, yeah, it feels like you're locked in a lift with Scientologists or proselytizers. Where whenever you this the terminology is very insistent. It feels hard. I mean, I've never been there, so I don't know. But it, it feels hard to get over that terminology to me because it has it has some of the trappings of pseudo religion or religion, right? And that's what David Foster Wallace really addressed in Infinite Jest, which is a book that Les Jameson turns to quite importantly, sort of about two thirds of the way through the book, and finds really helpful. And she says, yes, he critiques all the AA language and he identifies all these criticisms that you just pointed out, but he is still alive to its miracles. Mm. It's the thing that saved him. It's the thing that saved her. And there's a. They find in the end that the cliche is actually the addiction, and the miracle is the boring, unrelenting sight. She uses this phrase towards the end of the book. It's EFD. It's every fucking day. She gets up. She gets stressed. You don't think. You act. You get through it. Well, it's kind of in that David Foster Wallace vein of mindfulness before mindfulness became this term that we almost can't bring ourselves to say because it's so cliched. But yeah. He, it, is he a message to her, to her as well, a kind of a kindred spirit? Because he did that thing that she was looking for of writing amazingly from sobriety. Yeah, she starts sort of write, reading a page a day, and that's what and that's what starts to help her like really get through. So, is there a sedative quality to cliche? I always think this that when you know we have terror, when terror atrocities happen, people say thinking of and praying for, and at one level we recoil from that because it's kind of mindless pap at some level but actually the process of saying it means you are at least thinking empathetically about someone else there's a kind of sedative process that if you can frame something within a cliche it means someone else has already experienced it it means someone else has traveled down that route which means someone else has got through it so when you when you use cliche as happens at at AA and in other situations maybe actually the act of it shows that there is a well-trodden path and maybe that's what you're looking for to show that your path isn't just headed off into nowhere where you have no control it's good to know that people have 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 sort of used that the well-used nature of the words is is somehow reassuring exactly yeah and that goes back to the thing of just like you get through it by finding out there's nothing exceptional about your pain and your suffering there are other people who she says these people in this room this AA meeting know nothing about me except the most important part and they know that better than anyone else and, and is that the most important part is your addiction it the is most when important it's it is when part? it's kind of ruining your life and she and she has such amazing uh self-awareness through the book the way she writes about I don't know she has a heart operation and then decides that you know she has to stop taking them you're not allowed to drink with the medication so it's better to stop taking the medication she knows that she's gonna have an abortion so she keeps she's like well I know I'm having an abortion so I might as well keep drinking then there's lots of fun not making it sound funny there's lots of humor in it there's uh you know her boyfriend they're at a party and boyfriend goes I'll just go I'll go and get you a drink and he goes away and he starts talking to someone and she's like who the hell does that I need a drink. I need a drink. He talks to them for like half an hour. And she's just like, and so she's really funny yeah. through it. But addiction can be boring, can't it? Yeah, and it gets, and, and she, she, as the book goes on, she starts relaying that. And also we get a sense of that and of really of the, the real difficulty of it. 
through the other artists she considers. So, for example, I think it's Berryman. He got clean for a bit and started planning his great big novel, which is going to be called The Recovery, that was going to be dedicated to everyone who ever went to AA. And he started writing it, but then he relapsed. And, and so she explores yeah. all of that. And is there evidence of the writers that she refers to? Is there evidence of people getting sober and writing well? Because she, Carver. There's this... Raymond, Carver, Raymond Carver, she gives the example of, which is an interesting one. Yeah. Although perhaps he didn't write it. I was reading somewhere else in the TLS that there's his editor who was the one. Well, no, but that's the two different versions. Sorry, yeah. Roz, you explain. Well, no, so, so there's the version we all know that was edited by Gordon yeah. Lish. And everyone always says that that's much, much better than what Raymond Carver wrote. Les Jameson actually goes back to the original and finds lots of AA language in it and finds lots of hope and lots of redemption. And these are all the bits that Gordon Lish has cut out. And she loves those bits. I mean, is there actually evidence that people aren't good? I mean, because at one level, people who are drunk the whole time or stoned or high, mm. it seems unlikely that they'd be good at writing. Well, I mean, I think we can all say that we know plenty of writers who are excellent sober. Yeah, so. yeah. But, but are there any people who are... Because William Faulkner, was, we, we were talking separately, Ros, about that, but mm. he was drunk when he wrote stuff. Yeah. It just seems implausible, you know, being drunk and writing well at one level seems unlikely. Jean Reese is quite a good example. I mean, she was a mega drinker and, and she wrote very well. And Les Jameson writes very well about her and also talks a lot about you know, the hypocrisy between, you know, a, f a female's drinking in this arena is very rarely important or prolific in the way that a man's can be. Oh. So what, we, we, we pity a female drinker, but we regard a male drinker as part of We think she's a bad that. mother. And a male drinker, we think, oh, it's part of the It's part, it's of, the part charm. of their mm. charm. It's part of their thing. And she's a bad mother. She's not caring for someone else. So she's not... And so Leslie Jameson really addresses that. And there's the story as well, quite early on in the book, it's quite shocking, of, of, of Jean Reese's three-week-old baby who died because he was left by a window in Paris and got pneumonia. And Jean Reese was panicking that he hadn't been christened, so her partner bought two bottles of champagne and she wrote in her diary, you know, he died when we were happy after having drunk one bottle of champagne. It's a devastating story. And the thing about the whole of the recovering, the whole of Levsey Jameson's book, is these little stories that are kind of outside the halo of the really interesting drinkers are sort of touched upon. She doesn't explore them too much, but there is this sense of this damage. The weight of it. Around, around all these people. And she can't look at it too much. It's too difficult, but it's there. And that's the really disturbing part of the book. And really. is it trying to stop us romanticising the idea of, uh, you know, a sort of Coleridge high writing Kubla Khan or a, a writer with his whiskey writing something we romanticize that as all part and parcel of the creative process you have to be out of your mind ecstatic inspired and we associate drugs and booze with that in the same way as we associate it with other forms of sort of taking yourself out of yourself and we romanticize that and is this book to say you shouldn't romanticize it it's dangerous to romanticize it yeah in general there's a susan sontag thing it's like illness is metaphor yeah. suffering is interesting and illness is psychologically complex and this is to say suffering is not uh interesting in an intellectually complex way you know yeah. it's not it's not to be glamorized and as she also says you know the fact that i found all I, when i went to the iowa writers workshop and and found all these stories about the great mythic drinkers that had been there i found them so exhilarating it's because i'd never i didn't know i was born because I, I was so naive, you know? 
she does display the excitement and glamour of the early days of drinking and all that sort of stuff but she's under no illusion and leaves us under no illusion that sobriety is difficult and hard won and unrelenting but better and possibly more artistically rewarding possibly we'd hope so we'd hope so well it sounds like a great book I did really like it. It's, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's not perfect, but it, it definitely bears rereading. It's endlessly sort of quotable. And often you find addiction memoirs are not usually... No, misery like memoirs. That. Yeah. There's a lot of them. Yeah. Well, it's a magnificent piece, Ros. Uh, thank you so much for, for writing it and coming in to talk about it. Thank you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. David Foster Wallace was one of the great figures of 20th century American literature. His arch and knowing approach helped to shape the very tone of the American novel as the century came to an end, and his book Infinite Jest will stand as one of the great products of postmodernism. And there are not, if we are honest, too many of those. Imagine the thrill of being friends with this creative genius, on hand to observe his workings, the very process by which these great cultural ornaments were forged and burnished. This is how David Streitfeld begins his account of that experience. I was David Foster Wallace's worst friend. He would send me letters and I wouldn't answer them. He would send works in progress with forlorn notes. You're under no obligation to read or pretend to have read the enclosed, he wrote on one piece. I didn't. But David was close to a writer who wrestled with this question, which all writers must answer one way or another. How much of myself am I willing to give away to get what I want? Well, to tell us the answer and other assorted memories is David Streitfeld. David, hello. Hello. Tell us how you met David Foster Wallace. Where did the friendship begin? 
I was sent by the magazine Details, which was a trendy magazine for young men, to interview him on the publication of Infinite Jest in 1996. It was actually the first writer to, to come see him, and it was close to his first interview. He had done one or two before. And the interview was published, wasn't much, but we decided we liked each other and we became friends. We had a lot in common, although I should add here, he was a million times smarter and more talented than me. <laughs> it's quite a thing to become friends with someone you're interviewing, though, isn't it? Because the obstacles, particularly I suspect someone who is maybe a bit suspicious of fame, there's a lot of obstacles to overcome to use that. He was suspicious, but he was also incredibly innocent since he lived in Illinois, far from the media capitals of New York and L.A. And so he he only knew how to be open. So he was both very open and he was worried, more worried than suspicious, I think. He got into the habit of sending you his work. What, what did he What did he want you to do with it? I mean, I, I don't imagine he was asking for edits, or was he? He was very talented, obviously, and he knew how good he was. But like every writer, he had those demons that say, "Maybe I'm not. I'm not that good. I need help." I mean, for all I know, he was asking people in the supermarket about chapters of infinite jest writers even the great ones especially the great ones i found they're very insecure how do you think he'd regard this posthumous fame of his you know the movie based on an old interview you talk about the sale of his letters at auction how would he look at that do you think he he would hate it all but if he were alive those things wouldn't be happening i don't think friends would be selling his letters because then they wouldn't be his friends anymore and he would be able to control the movie or make it not happen. Yeah. So I think a, a lot of this stuff, once you're dead, you're just kind of everybody's property and everybody writes about you and everybody can say whatever they want. When you're alive, they can control. you can control that process more. Did you watch that film? I'm just curious whether whether you would have brought yourself to watch the film or would have, whether that would be weird to see someone you know so well up on the screen like that. To be honest, I didn't watch the film and I didn't read the book it was based on because it was just too close. Mm. David really hated the notion of people writing about him, people focusing attention on him. And so I felt... I could remain faithful to him by not watching it mm. and by not writing about it. I finally have done so after 10 years, which I hope is a long enough time. But until then, until this moment, I kept the faith. And would he, And so you think he was betrayed? Do you think that people have betrayed him? I mean, this is the first time that you said you've written about him. Do you think some of the things that have happened to him are a betrayal of sorts? Well, um, you know, some of the things written about him were by people he didn't know, so I guess it can't really be a bit, yeah. uh, betrayal. It's that age-old literary question, you know, should we burn Tosca's drafts and notes when he dies, or should we preserve them for literary history? The writer wants one thing, everybody else wants another. I think it's an individual decision that everyone has to make. My decision was for at least a decade to write and say nothing at all. 
Tell us about this chain letter. Your piece uh, begins with a fantastic anecdote about a chain letter. I can just about remember chain letters uh, when I was a kid, that they were frightening things. That If someone sent you a chain letter, like you were angry with the person for sending you one because they were sort of putting you on the hook even though you didn't believe it. Exactly. Although the prospect of getting really good luck kind of automatically was incredibly appealing. A chain letter, I'll, I'll explain for people who are too young to remember, <laughs> was something you got through the postal system. And it was a packet with an original letter that said, please respond to this chain and make sure you follow through by sending five copies of everything here to five of your friends. And then you would have to go to wherever there was a photocopier, Xerox it all, and write your letter to go on top and send it to five of your friends who would then do the same thing all over again. And the theory was, if you kept the chain, you everyone involved would get good luck, starting with you. It was really completely ridiculous, but I remember doing it at basically age nine, many, many years ago. The, the internet rendered all of this completely ridiculous because you can send everything on within two seconds. And so... It, it again, it was something that it seems nine year olds, nine year old boys, I don't think the girls were that uh, were that willing. They were smarter. And so for David to send me one, I mean, this, the most brilliant mind of his generation was somewhat incongruous. But in a typical uh, Wallace move, his one sentence in the cover line was in Latin, which um, I didn't know what it meant then because I didn't have Google then. I had forgotten my Latin. But it was effectively, uh, no, no man is wise at all hours, which in David's speak means I need all the help I can get. Please keep this chain going. And I, in my typical truculence, did not keep it going. And it was there on my desk forever, and I thought I should do it. And I just didn't do it. One uh, literary oddity is one of the other recipients was Jonathan Franzen, who was a good friend of David's. And I assume, I've never asked Franzen about it, I don't, I don't know him, um, but I assume he kept the chain going because his career, his, his next book was The Corrections and uh, sold, you know, four million copies. So... That's proof. I mean, if we, if we needed proof that chain letters work, that that's it right there. Yes, and if we need a proof that I really blew it, it's right there. <laughs> yeah. um, from now on, I'm answering all chain letters that I get, but I haven't got one in 25 years. I mean, this was in 1996. So it can't have been long after Infinite Jest came out. Right. So presumably the luck that he was referring to or hoping for was... was Kind of in the reviews and the critical reception because i suppose when that book first came out the reviews were quite mixed i think right i have a somewhat revisionist history of infinite jest which is there there is this notion now that it was the major work of american fiction of the last 20 years or 25 years at the time it, it was very mixed there were mm. some people who thought it was great but a lot of people just resented the notion that they had to read 
or we're supposed to read or we're being recommended this thousand page novel by this brainy guy that gave them a headache it just it seemed like a lot of work mm, and, and famously um Michiko Kakutani and James Wood I think both both said that they they didn't rate it and someone one of them I think called it terrible and then later subsequently you know they they revised their opinions Right. I don't remember Wood, but Kakatani, she gave it a mixed review, maybe 60% positive, 40% negative. It was not the review of your dreams if you were the writer. Did he care about that sort of thing? He cared, and then he hated himself for caring, and then he hated himself for, I don't know what the next level would be, for even thinking about caring. He always said, or at least said more than once, that he lived in Illinois, which is fairly far from the literary centers. Because if he lived in New York, he would have to be going down to the newsstand, to the magazine store, every five minutes to see if there was a new magazine mentioning him. So he wanted it, he wanted to see it, and yet he hated himself for going to see it he hated himself for even wanting to see it. This was, even aside from his uh, horrible depression, this was a guy who had many uh, uh, mixed emotions. And how central was his role as a writer to him, do you feel? Because as you said, there was, you know, he, he talks about depression and those issues around addiction. Was that connected in some way to his his view of his success or otherwise as a writer? Because we've just been talking actually about the connections often specious between addiction and art. How did it work with him, do you think? I, I think with him, his identity as a writer of someone who actually is sitting there putting words on a page or I guess words on a computer was very central. And it was the one thing that he found that he could hold on to and that would work for him and would help for him. So it would, it would help him just stay afloat in the world. And everything else he tried ruined him. Primarily drugs um, you know, was the path to destruction. Writing, being a writer was the path to salvation. Then at the end of his life, when the depression was so bad and he had trouble with the drug that was regulating the depression he couldn't write he couldn't finish the novel and that really helped destroy him i think it's interesting though that um his his kind of parting gesture was to leave pale king to be assembled it, it seems it seems strange for someone who was so uh, in control wanted to be so in control of his work you know to the point that that anecdote that you give um about a magazine uh, to which he submitted a story, which I think an, an early version of Octet, and right. they made changes to it. And he, you know, he said, "Do not change a comma." <laughs> uh, you know, it, it just seems strange to me that he would, as his parting gesture, leave this unfinished work in the hands of someone else. It does mean that he cared about the writing more than anything. I think he literally left the manuscript of the book, even though it was unfinished, on his desk in a neat little pile uh, where anybody would see it. And it's not like it was hidden away. It was not like he destroyed it. He didn't keep it in his computer. My memory is he left it right there. And so even unfinished, he wanted something done with it. Although he would be 
upset if um, I don't know someone took it as it was and and changed the word. I mean, remember, it, Infinite Jest is a thousand pages long, more than a thousand pages, and he felt if I have to cut one more word out of it. <laughs> It'll destroy the book. <laughs> we, we had one, Henry James used to write for the TLS. This is maybe an apocryphal story, but the story of Henry James submitting his copy to the TLS uh, and an editor took out two, three sentences or asked him to take out two or three sentences and he sent a, the text back with a, with a letter that says, here is the mangled corpse, yours is a butcher's trade. Um, which always makes me feel happy that whenever we have rows with writers at the paper, that there's a long and proud history of writers feeling that changing the merest comma will destroy the entire edifice of, the, of, of their creation. Exactly. Though Henry James, if he was like every other writer, was probably at the post office sending that letter saying to the postal clerk, so do you think, you know, this paragraph should be like this? Mangled corpse? Or do you think it should be, you know, dead beast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when you look back, David, uh, on your friendship, because you, you, you say um, you were his worst friend, um, and we don't take that literally, of course, but when, whenever people people pass away, there's always regret, there's always might have been. Do you look back on your, your relationship and wish things had gone differently, wish you had read more of his stuff, or, or do you not allow yourself that, that regret? No, I, I, I certainly do. I mean, I wish I were... I wish I were a better person and, then, and a better friend to him. Um, but I wish I'd been a better friend to almost all my friends. Gabriel Garcia Marquez once said he wanted all of his friends to think that he, Garcia Marquez, was their best friend. And so, you know, he wanted his 30 friends or his 30 <laughs> best friends to all think, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, he's so great to me. I couldn't live without him. I don't know. In my next life, that's what I will aspire to. I think even there's something noble about even feeling regret, though, David, because if you were entirely heedless, then you wouldn't even feel the regret. And there is something to be said for the fact that you kept that chainmail, you know, so there's, there was already some kind of nod to posterity or, or something there. I appreciate the sentiment, but I probably <laughs> kept everything just I'm messy and keep everything from well, well, everyone. We're, we're, David, we're trying we're trying to ennoble you, so let's 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 leave it there. Thank you, thank, thank you so thank you so much for for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Did you um did you see the film? No, it was by my friend, the guy who's in How I Met Your Mother as well, wasn't it? That very famous actor that played David Foster. Oh, uh, Jason. Yeah, Seagal. Seagal, yeah. Seagal, yeah. Was he good? I was surprised, actually. Um, I think he liked Foster Wallace I, growing well, yeah. up. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly, you can certainly tell that. But I mean, as as uh, David says in his piece, you don't really tend to think, oh, uh, a film about uh, two writers, an interview with a writer, great. <laughs> watch that, yeah. Um, but actually, yeah, I, I found it very engaging. It's a, it's a it's a fascinating guy. I might become. I read. I've read half of Infinite Jest. I've yeah, I've always been much more drawn to his non-fiction than his fiction. I think I think the idea of a, a pluribus, thousand pages yeah. of hyperrealism when when I first came to it that was that was too much. So I you know I probably would have been a Michiko Kakutani about yeah. it. But the non-fiction, I think he's one of the few writers who I would who I routinely in my head say. I wish he was around because I would love to commission him to write however many words he wanted to write on anything from the big five to the rise of dog grooming parlours. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. But writers who you could read on anything. Yeah. Which there aren't that many of. Exactly. 
That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David Streitfeld and Ros Deneen. Make sure you buy a copy of this week's life writing special of the TLS or subscribe. Next week, we'll be tackling Henry James and the Middle East. That's torturous wranglings that never seem to end and the Middle East. I don't really mean that, but I love Henry James. <laughs> Henry James fan theory? Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, what? You sound surprised. Well, most people kind of aren't, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, favourite Henry James novel? Well, let's pick this up next week. Yeah, but just tell us now the favourite one. Uh, Washington Square. Good. I like the portrait of a lady, boringly. Oh, well, no, but that, yes, also very good. It is very good. Also very good. We'll see what we get up to <laughs> next week. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.